Well, we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And today's scripture um, is in chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, spit upon him and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as a ruler's lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. May God grant us understanding in a new way for these words this day. So when I was growing up in Montana, one of my fondest memories was spending time on a sheep ranch in the mountains above Cascade, Montana. My step-grandmother, Grandma Jean, curmudgeonly as she was, was a cook on the ranch. I was probably in fifth grade and my brother was two years older. We spent several weeks each summer with Graham. I know now that those times coincided with super busy times on the ranch. We were there to help fetch and carry as she fed large groups of men and women who were there to tend the sheep. They were there for the birthing, and later in the summer, they were there for the shearing. And it meant sometimes two and three settings at each meal. There was a lot of people. But as I look back on that, my memory was that we were kind of free-range kids up there. Yes, there was work to do, 
hard work. There were days I never wanted to see another dish that I could wash. But we could also ride horses, help feed at the orphan lambs, and play with the kittens that kind of frolicked around in the yard. You know, as I look back on Graham's little room that we all shared when we were there, I don't remember there being a television. There might have been, but I don't remember it. We spent the evenings playing cards around this great big long table that the, the employees ate at. When, when the last dish was done, Graham would get out those decks of cards and we would sit at the table. And she taught us how to play things like rummy and spades and I don't know what else. Here's what I re remember most though. Graham did not give us any quarter. She didn't give us any breaks. So the first time that I won the game of rummy, I knew that I won. Because she didn't give any. Did I say curmudgeon? Yeah. That was Grandma Jean. That feeling was wonderful. I was on top. I mean, I even beat my brother, who was pretty competitive. I did this. We humans have kind of a competitive streak. We like to win. We like to be on top. Some of us are more ambitious than others. For example, as we were raising our kids, I learned not to play Monopoly with my son, Anthony, because Anthony was ruthless. It wasn't very long into the game, and he would have all the property, complete with hotels, and I might have a couple of bills on my hands. Anthony liked to play to win. You might be a kind of a, a person who approaches games that way. My husband is. And some of the people I know are. But I like to play just for the fun of playing. But we have kind of built into our DNA a kind of a competitive streak. Do you recall a time when you've won something? And you feel really excited about that? Well, our story today is about how two disciples wanted to be great. They wanted to be best, to have the highest honor. And as you notice in the scripture, Jesus's teaching turns this idea upside down. We're going to explore that a little bit today. Um, so here goes. As they walked along the dusty road toward Jerusalem, Something about Jesus' Jesus's demeanor and his determination uh, to press on urgently, urgently to Jerusalem amazed his disciples. Okay, so there were, there were people that were walking um, with him, and they were amazed, and there were people behind him that were afraid. Isn't that an interesting dilemma? We might 
ask where we would be. Would we be amazed or afraid? I don't know. Mark tells us that there was a crowd around. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Not only were Jesus' followers there, but the roads were packed with pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for Passover. This happened every Passover. They would all gather up what they needed for the journey, and they would head toward Jerusalem for this pilgrimage toward Passover. The, the city literally swelled to um, a couple million people at that time. Now, we around us have a lot of people in the Portland area. But that was not what Jerusalem was like in non-Passover times. So it was a big, bustling, busy place. So as they're walking along, Jesus must have seen kind of a teachable moment or something uh, because he calls his disciples aside, his 12 aside, and quietly um, reminded them why he was going to Jerusalem. He has told this twice before in Mark's gospel. Um, but still they did not get it because when he says it again, it's not getting in there. It's not getting in here. You know, I don't know what's going on with these disciples and, and hearing this story so many times. You know, it might be something like selective hearing. You know, when we practice that all the time, you know, when we go out to dinner, there's bustle and, and noise all around us, but we're at our little table and we can hear what's happening right there. It might be that you might have a teenager or know a teenager that when you say, when you clean your room, put on your shoes and we'll go to the mall, and they don't hear the when you clean your room place, they begin to put on those shoes, they're ready to go to the mall. It's that kind of selective hearing, that thing that we hear, you know, pieces of it, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons it might be in, that help us or make us use that selective hearing. It might be that we're excited. It may, might be that we're bored. It might be that we're stressed. And I wonder if that might be the case with these disciples. You know, this is their beloved rabbi, their beloved friend. And he has told them now, two times before this, that he is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And they may not want to hear that information. Um, so we can kind of give them a little bit of slack here, but um, but the very truth of the matter was Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to be killed. And he's trying to prepare them for his departure even though they're not ready to hear. This trip to Jerusalem would be Jesus' last. When he gets there, the events of Passion Week happen. And we'll talk more about that, um, that week as we begin to enter into Passion Week, which begins next Sunday with Palm Sunday.
But this particular journey started in Caesarea Philippi. After Peter's confession, when remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about um, who do you say that I am? And, and I said that Peter, um, in one of the accounts said, or Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, you're right, Peter. And now, after that, he said, we're going to Jerusalem where I will suffer and die. I'll suffer many things from the priest and the, and the elders and the scribes, and I'll be killed and I will be raised in three days. They don't seem to have heard that then, nor the next time it's said, nor this time. Instead, we have this really strange little interaction between James and John and Jesus. A little side note, something I realized when I'm, you know, laying out, you know, the scriptures and I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. A little side note is, this is the only place where the two appear without Peter. This is the inner circle, the inner three. And in this place, at this time, is James and John. And, you know, it could have been that um, Peter had just asked his question and then that get behind me Satan thing happened. It could be that, you know, after that get behind me Satan, the whole thing about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Um, and it doesn't sound too good that Peter still has his place in that inner circle, according to James and John. Now, you know, I'm guessing. But it would seem to me if there are three close buddies and two come for the question that they ask Jesus, that Peter's on the outs in their world. I don't know. Might be that selective hearing thing as well. So anyhow, they, they approach Jesus, James and Don, and basically said, since you are going to Jerusalem to set up your kingdom, would you mind appointing a second in command? You know, just, it would look really good on a resume. <laughs> Unbelievable. Did they not just hear what he said? A little side note, too, is that it was thought that being on the right hand was a place of honor and on the left was the second highest honor. That's why they wanted that. They wanted Jesus here and then they wanted to be here and here as the kingdom is set up. And it's like they kind of forgot. They put their blinders on. They didn't see what had to happen before Jesus came into his glory. So they're saying to him, give us those seats. Make us your co-captains. Do this thing because we're asking that of you. It doesn't seem to me like they're grasping where Jesus is coming from. 
they don't quite get to the end of the story. Now, granted, we know the end of the story. We know what happens Holy Week. And we know what happens Easter morning. We know those things. So we can have the hindsight. So I would ask you, if you were in this place with the disciples at that time, and you're told this thing, would you believe it? We don't know a lot about that culture and how that might translate to our culture, but I'm not sure I would. That seems so far out. I don't know about you, I don't know of anyone who was raised from the dead. I know a lot about suffering, though. I don't know where I would be in that story. You know, the, the Lectio Divina kind of looking at scriptures is to, to find where you are in the story. And then I'm not sure where I would be in that story. Would I be Peter? Would I be James, John? Would I be one of the other disciples? I don't know. I don't know. And I think, as I look at that, I think that it's really arrogant of them. Now, this is my humanity showing. I think it's really arrogant of them to go to, to Jesus and say, make me next. You, go, you be the head and I'll be the, we'll be the next in command. And I, I see that as arrogance. But I think it happens all the time. I think it happens all the time. Because we have that competitive gene in our DNA. Matthew adds some other details to this whole story. This is Mark. And, you know, remember Mark has, okay, straight as an arrow. We're going straight this way. We're going to get to Jerusalem. That's Mark. But, but Matthew adds some other things about this story. Um, he tells us that James and John's mother is the one who approached Jesus with this request. Possible. And if you would compare all the account, accounts of this, um, John and James' mother might also have been Mary's sister. Interesting, huh? If that's true, that means that Jesus' aunt and James and John were cousins. The mother was Jesus' aunt, and James and John were cousins. And there might have been a little family pressure for this, make us on top here. Mark, though, it's just James and John, and they are asking for a favor. It's like they're saying, how about granting us the most important position in the kingdom, and how about lauding us with honor and power and prestige and recognition and fame and fortune? How about greatness? After, after all, that is what a kingdom is all about, isn't it? And I'll say to you right now that they're missing the mission and the message because we actually know the end of the story. We know what happens to James and John. We know what happens to Peter. Peter grows up and becomes the rock. 
and he dies a martyr. James also dies as a martyr. John dies in exile. Those are the historical accounts. And, and you can look at the other disciples and see what happens there. So when they ask this question of Jesus, he answers, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And I'll tell you that in kind of the, the world of Hebrew language, this was an idiom that connected completely with suffering. If you were drinking a cup, it was drinking suffering. That was kind of the way the Hebrew Bible worked that, um, part, that language worked. Are you able to endure the suffering I'm about to endure? Are you able to be baptized with the baptize, baptism I'm about to receive? Their arrogant answer was, of course we are able. But were they? Not at first. They deserted Jesus at the very height of his betrayal. They hid behind locked doors after the crucifixion and before the resurrection. Even later, they quit and joined Peter on the Sea of Galilee and went back to fishing. Fishing for fish, that is. Were they able? No. Not by themselves, but later, after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit filled them, they were able. James was one of the first martyrs, as I said before. Uh, he was put to death by this, the sword at the command of Herod. John, I said, was the one who was put in exile. They lived that suffering. They lived that cup. And at this point in the story, as with any close group of people, when two decide they're going to be leaders, the others grumble. You know, they grumble. They under, was it because they understood what was going to happen? I don't think so. They felt they were blindsided. They were in this together. The 12 of them were the, the, the disciples. They were the ones, the followers, everything. And then here comes James and John put this bid for being first. So, Jesus launches into this teaching moment with them. He begins to talk to them about the nature of his kingdom. Namely, that this is a kingdom where people serve. Your request is greatness. My answer is service. The kingdom of God operates in a way diametrically opposed to the kingdoms of this world. It's not the same where in this world, kingdoms are about power and about being first, about being strongest. We see it in our world right now, don't we?
in a world greatness is determined by in the world greatness is determined by authority by the number of people under you by the number of people you can tell what to do the number of people who respect you answer to you serve you greatness is determined by your self-esteem and by the way others esteem you but the but the kingdom in the kingdom of god greatness is determined by how you serve the greatest in the kingdom of God are the servants. The example Jesus uses to encourage our service is his own, of giving his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. Jesus' wonderful counselor says, the greatest among you will be your slave just as the greatest to ever walk on this earth served. Being found in the form of a servant, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. If you wrap your mind around that little piece, it is so awesome. I end up with goosebumps on my arms as I think about that kind of love, that kind of service. That is the clearest statement as to why Jesus came, not to be great, but to serve and to love. Isn't that amazing? We will always serve something in our lives. And that's true. But it seems to me that this kind of service, service that comes out of love, changes the world. James and John think that greatness comes out of power. But it's not about power. It's not. So I started my message talking about playing games with Graham and learning to win through hard work. As I'm looking at the idea of service and servanthood this day, I'm re I realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that serving others means work. I think that our people here this day, this week, Betty and Joe and Laura and others who have worked with Cassandra outside know that it's work. And it's frustrating. And that we may not have the answers when we'd like to have them now. I don't know how that's going to resolve. But I saw Stephen taking a warm drink out to Cassandra a little while ago. 
and I see a servant. Serving and caring for others, as I said before, is how we change our world. The lunches we make, the fridges we fill, the apartments that will eventually fill, those things are the way we serve. You know, serving looks a little different for each of us. It does. Because some of us are able to do the hands and feet work. And that's beyond some. And I totally get that. But I think that, that we need every piece of this body in service. And service can look like praying. And service can look like being a cheerleader for those that are doing the hands and feet work. Service can be showing up. Service can be making cookies that we can take with us on Wednesday. And sandwiches already made that we can start loading those bags. Service can look like many things. And if we have the idea that we have to, every one of us, do everything, we're going to burn out. But if we can look at service in a way that we do what we can anytime we can, and we do it with kindness and love, then my service attaches itself to Betty's service, that attaches itself to Gail's service, and Brenda's service, and Sally's service, and Martin's service, and, and Tiffany's service. And, and I could go on and name all of you. And what happens to our service is it becomes huge. It becomes so much bigger than us. It becomes the thing that brings light to the kingdom of God. It is my belief that it is those who serve who will change this broken world that we live in. One act of service at a time. And in that, there is power. And that gives me hope for tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. May God continue to show us where our power is, where our service is, where our love is, and how we can support each other where mine and yours can come together and where we are a force to be reckoned with. Whatever that will look like in the future, I have no clue. But I want to see it happen. God, may you grant us understanding of your kingdom this day. Amen.